This is the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Oki. Today's episode features my conversation with Daniela Jupan Jerome. Daniela and I first met back when we were both doctoral students at Boston College, and we have a mutual interest in theology, technology, and media. And in this conversation, we talk about that interest. We talk about how her experience in RCIA aided her in discovering her vocation to theology and also how she brings digital media into the classroom. We also talk about her love for The Office, which apparently she's watched all the way through at least three times. And she sets us straight on the Lenten hashtag controversy. Now, some of you may be wondering, hey, Steve, what about the book giveaway you talked about last time? An excellent question. After many retweets, we at Daily Theology are happy to crown Alyssa Cutter, the winner of our very first book raffle. Dr. Cutter will receive her copy of Father Robert Mbelli's Rekindling the Christic Imagination soon. Thanks to everyone who listened, who entered, and who reviewed. Some among you may be sad that you entered but did not win. Others may regret that you missed your chance. Well, fear not, because with this week's episode, we again have a book giveaway. This time, the persistently kind people at Liturgical Press are giving away a copy of Daniela Jupan Jerome's Connected Towards Communion, The Church and Social Communication in the Digital Age. It is a fantastic book, and one of you lucky listeners will get the chance to find that out for yourself. As with last time, to enter to win, please either retweet the tweet announcing this episode, or, if you're not a Twitter person, Leave a review of the podcast on iTunes and email a screenshot to dailytheo at gmail.com. I'll announce the winner on the next episode of the podcast. Thanks again to those brave souls who headed over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast in order to support the show. They continue to receive the finest benefits, including, but not limited to, swag, automatic entry in any of our giveaways, and the knowledge that if I could give plenary indulgences, they would probably receive them. Please also leave comments on the blog post that accompanies this episode or leave us a review on iTunes. Another way you can help is recommend the show to your friends, especially when they ask, do you know of any good podcasts I could listen to? And as always, thank you for listening. So today on the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm here with Daniela Jupin Jerome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Steve Oki, for inviting me, having me be part of this. I'm very excited. I've seen your work with the blog and the podcast for a long time. I think I wrote something for you all a while, a while back, too. Yep. So I think it's just really good stuff, and I'm honored to be part of it today. Well, That's thank awesome. You. Thank you. The, the first question I like to start with is essentially, how did you get into theology? What, what you know, experiences or background shaped you in a way that you wanted to get into, you know, the academic life of the theologian? Okay, so I think this goes back a while. And it's, it's kind of a personal, but also, it's an autobiographical answer, I'll just share some of it. So I'm actually an immigrant from Hungary. And I moved to the United States when I was in, in middle school, I was 11 years old, and then lived in the Chicago area until I, I got old enough to go to various grad schools and you know, colleges. But having moved from Hungary, I had never completed my sacraments of initiation. I was mm. baptized when the church was starting to get back on, on her feet after the fall of communism. Mm -hmm. So I was actually, I think I was eight or nine years old, I was baptized. Mm. 
and received First Communion, but then we immigrated. And this was like a, a major transformation <laughs> of life, as you can imagine. And I had never, I had never been confirmed. And that kind of tugged at me and bothered me. So at the end of high school, as a senior, I finally felt settled enough. And we were like in a neighborhood, in close to a parish. We were like settled as a family to, to be able to do this. So my dad took me to the parish church and I, they put me in RCIA which I didn't know what that was at the time, but I was already baptized and, and had re received communion. So they put me in RCIA for my confirmation lessons with people who are just becoming Catholic. I didn't know better, you know, for the logistics, but it was still an amazing experience. And I began falling in love with my faith and just taking it so, so much, so much more seriously. So I ended up going to uh, Notre Dame as a result, because it was one, it was the one campus that really blew my mind and mm. the thing that blew my mind about it was that they had chapels in their dorms so i was in the midst of a, like a, a conversion experience and that was so impressive to me they had uh, their own liturgies in dorms so i went there and i was in love with it you know mm -hmm. and i discovered there that you could study theology and at, at that time they had and i still they, they do still have this the required theo 101 class and that just blew my mind. Um, mm. And I took that with Max Johnson, who's a liturgy scholar, if anyone out there knows him. And he was just this larger than life figure. He's still there. He's amazing. And just all these amazing bits of information about the early church and what that was like. I mean, I never heard any of this, you know, so it just blew my mind. I thought it was amazing. And with with in conjunction with my faith becoming really alive as a young adult, I fell in love with the discipline and I still love it. And I thought, you know, what a blessing it is to not just live this, but be able to study it and have that be your profession. Now, you know, 20, 25 years down, like I know that also has its challenges when mm -hmm. it's also your work and you have to find a good balance. But that's how I got into it. It was through conversion and study. And also, I'll have to say, people being able to support me along the way to follow this, which was to, in the eyes of the world, very impractical mm -hmm. or different or unique. But people supported me along the way so I could, you know, go to graduate school after that, two places and study subjects <laughs> that were very much like I studied liturgy first and then I studied sacred art for my second master's. And both of those are just like these beautiful subjects. Yeah. What do you do with them? You know, but people supported me along the way that I could. And then I got my doctorate at Boston College like you did. And I did religion and education, theology and education. So as I fell in love with this discipline, one of the questions that are like, it was on my heart the whole time is this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful and no one knows about it. Like how come people don't know hmm. these amazing facts about the church and her history and the depth of the tradition? Like people don't know. And yet people have so many opinions and there are negative opinions. So I just felt my heart set on fire for like not only knowing this, but being working on how do we communicate this with people in a way that could be transformed by it. Like okay. I don't th I think that the church, I think the tradition, I think Christianity has solid, solid. We're not in a problem for content. It's solid content. We have the story, right? That's not our problem. I think our problem is sometimes a PR problem and sometimes a communication problem. How do we get this message mm -hmm. out? How do we tell people the way they can receive it? And it could really touch their hearts. So I think that's what that's why I still love theology and love doing what I do in addition to the, you know, the beauty of God that became clear to me in the beginning is how do we hand this on then? Like, how do we do that? And that's still a really interesting question. Yeah. If I, if I can go back to the, the early part of your personal narrative, I, I have two, I guess, follow-up questions. 
One is when you when you were a child in Hungary and you said you weren't baptized till you were eight or nine years old. Mm-hmm. Pri- I mean, prior to that, was was the faith practiced in your home kind of surreptitiously? What like was there a community that you could be a part of? I mean, I, I realize you were very young, so I, I don't. No, I remember, and I can tell you about it definitely. So. And this is another thing that's, I think, important for theology to be conscious of, the academy to be conscious of in general, is personal piety and popular religiosity. Mm -hmm. And often we we have all these different opinions about it in the academy. But, I mean, in Eastern Europe, that's what what kept tradition and the faith going, is people's homes and grandmothers telling stories and singing songs and teaching rhymes. And that's how I was handed on the faith. You know, I mean, that's probably not unlike people in, in countries that where religion was established. But, you know, grandma told me about, about Jesus and the angels. You know, I scraped my knee and there was an occasion for her to catechize and just in a way a child would understand. <laughs> and so, yes, it was practiced in my home. It wasn't practiced as much around me institutionally until these programs were started back up again, which mm-hmm. were which was happening. You know, I was. I was born in 79, and so in the 80s I lived there. And it was happening already in the 80s. Like, it wasn't as vicious of a persecution as it would have been, you know, decades before that. I remember, this is kind of neat, I remember this super old sister coming back to start our catechesis program for us, which were, we were elementary school age kids. We were terrible and unruly and, like, you know, wiggly (laughs) as, as all anything. And this poor sister came back from wherever she'd been exiled for decades because of communism to like catechize mm-hmm. us. And we were just terrible, you know, and I'm still, <laughs> I still pray for her. Like we should have been better to honor this, this amazing woman who like was our catechist, but we were wiggly and, and unruly. Anyway, so <laughs> kids, we had these <laughs> things. We, we, were, we were totally kids. We were totally kids. And this beautiful woman came and tried to teach us. She's been through worse. <laughs> So, yeah, it, it was definitely practiced in, in domestic ways and popular ways. And then the institution was picking, was getting the feet under her gradually, you know, in my experience. Okay. The, the second one I wanted to go back to was you said you were, you were put into the RCIA program. Uh, I mean, you didn't baptize, but it's, it sounded like that was a very positive experience for you. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm curious, what was it? And I, I, I asked this as someone who went through RCIA himself and has since led RCIA a couple of times. And I've always had, I'll be honest, I've always had kind of a, a mixed relationship with it. I'm wondering what was what was positive or what were the strengths of your experience of going through RCIA? I think belonging and community, which are very basic things. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, aside from the point that I already mentioned that it was the amazing things about my faith that I was learning that mm-hmm. I, you know, you guys didn't know. So it was very attractive to me just from that perspective. But to belong somewhere, to be part of a group to go through those rituals. Now, remember, I was an immigrant. Mm-hmm. So for an immigrant to be included in community yeah. again in these ritual ways was very meaningful. Like, I don't know if that res- that clicked for me at the time consciously, but I think subconsciously it really worked on my heart. Okay. Um, it just, you know, you belong deeper to the parish community and not just be another place where I go where I'm an outsider. So I think that was really, that was done well at this parish. And just to see the stories of these other folks, all ages, as you know, with RCIA, Mm -hmm. some people come to it like late in life. So it was just, I think that aspect of belonging that was interesting to me in addition to learning about the faith. Okay. So the the thing that you and I maybe most have in common is, is a deep interest in theology and technology, media, communications, and all that sort of thing. And you, you've already talked a, a fair amount about the need for better messaging, better communication. And you've also talked, even in your own experience as a child, about the experience of faith formation in that particular context. And I was wondering, you know, 
I guess one of my questions is, what is it that made, you know, the technology and media question a big question for you? And then also, how do you see that playing a role in uh, the, the process of faith formation in today's church? Okay, I think those are both really, really great questions. I remember when I started at Boston College, in my department, which was different than yours, they ask you your dissertation topic right away, like when you walk in, <laughs> what are you writing it on? And I think, you know, pedagogically, in retrospect, I think a really good question to be focused and, you know, mm-hmm. that bit of pressure was a helpful pressure. And I didn't know, I didn't have the catechesis and, the, and digital culture angle until a while. But, they, you know, they keep asking you and they keep mm-hmm. expecting you to think about it. And it, it clicked for me, maybe like a year, year into the program, I was thinking about a paper I had to write for class. And it had to do with video games mm. as 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 a medium for for uh, communicating faith, which is still a really interesting topic. I don't know the depth of it these days, but I, I kind of dabbled at at, at a time uh, with that. And um, I remember researching for that, and I remember coming across a story. I think it was a major network produced little like human interest story about a little boy who had cancer, leukemia specifically. And part of his treatment was that they created a video game for him in which mm. he was the agent that got to kill the, the bad cells. And he was mo- moving through like a little simulation, killing the bad cells and trying to you know, f- help flourish the good ones. And that was part of his treatment. Or maybe just a, a cherry on the top type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Added on to help him. And that somehow was a transformative example for me, thinking about how the experience of going through something technologically, how that worked upon him and was possibly transformative for him for his healing in lots of different ways. And I thought, gosh, there's more to this than just toys, you know? So that was very technological. And I've brought in that question sense of it's not just technology, it's not the gadget per Mm -hmm. se, but I think it's a culture around it in which we as people interact in different ways with each other, with the world. And how that much has changed so exponentially, you know, mm-hmm. just in recent decades. I think it's a very relevant question. And, you know, when you connect it with theology and revelation and evangelization and these topics that are deeply communicative, I think there's a lot there to dig, you know, and a lot there to talk about. It's not just a question of, oh, geez, the church has to keep up with young people and they're into this thing. But I think it's a deeper question of, as church, we are deputed to think about communication, not just in a practical way of, you know, proclaiming the message, but that God spoke to us. And that's the incarnation. And what does that mean? And how communication is a profound part of what we understand as fundamental theology and what we understand as the incarnation, what we understand as, as you know, even sacramental presence. And that event of that is communicative. Uh, the Trinity's inner life could be cast in, t- in terms of communication, right? So that this topic is so profoundly woven through our understanding of who God is and who we are, that there's an occasion, I think, for us in culture today to really connect the two. Mm-hmm. Not Again, not just on this practical level of like a parish council wanting to figure out what to do with the youth group, um, <laughs> right? Because I think that's the level of the conversation often, like, well, there's these gadgets. No, but like, it's a profound part of our, communication's a profound part of our theology. And I think there's such an opportunity there to like flesh that out, especially in an age where communication through various media and gadgets is what we do. It's what defines this time. Yeah. So I think that's a really quite important question for me because of that. Yeah. One of the one of the things I noticed, I was recently for a paper, I was going back over the World Communications Day messages from Pope Francis. And one of the things that struck me about his 
I, I think in contrast to some of the prior popes is the the actual technology angle of those messages is almost downplayed. Mm-hmm. And he, he focuses so much on, you know, like the, there's the one on the family, there's one on mercy, there's more recent one on fake news. You know, there's obviously a sense in which, you know, gadgets and digital technology play a role in it. But he focuses so much on the underlying theme itself that it it helps to emphasize this broader sense in which communication is important for the tradition. Mm-hmm. And it, that hadn't clicked with me until I was rereading the, the four or five of them that he's done just a couple of weeks ago. I just think it's an excellent insight. And I think that's absolutely true. In my recent work, fairly recent work as a scholar on this, I was blessed to get to know some amazing people, including uh, Bishop Paul Tai and Antonio Spodaro and some folks in Europe who are working on this mm-hmm. and like on that ecclesial sort of curial level even at, at times. And I learned from them that that angle is the angle for the church. I mean, technology is a gift in a lot of ways, but communication is about people, right? Mm-hmm. And how people live in community and relate and establish closer relationships and maybe forge communion, right? So communication is, I think, a de facto theological topic and of interest to the church. Technology is a is a different approach. You know, mm-hmm. it's a different... Certainly the church is interested in... I mean our worship spaces are full of technology, like yeah. liturgy, has, you know, a candle is technology, a book is technology, but communication is of pastoral interest to us okay. as people in the church. And I think that's really important. And I see that resonating with Francis, of course, with his pastoral approach. I love the, the route he's gone. He calls things out like fake news. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if you want, we can unflash some of those a little bit more in a conversation or not, but if anyone's listening and hasn't checked into the World Communications Day messages, um, and if this is a topic interesting to you, I, I really recommend them because they're short and they tend to get to the point and they tend to be really useful on that level of the church's thought for today's conversation. Yeah, I think I think the messages themselves are one of the like great after effects of Vatican II and, it, and it's mm-hmm. something that people don't know about. And I'm sort of constantly shocked by how little <laughs> people think about the role of especially digital technology in their lives and how it forms them. And I, one of the things I love about those messages, and I, I try to write something about them every time they, every year when they come out is to get people to actually like actively think about this aspect of the tradition. Something you, you said as you were talking about digital media and I wanted to pick up on is uh, you talked about the incarnational nature of the tradition. You mentioned sacraments, the idea of presence and, and I mean, as you know, one of the like regular critiques of digital communications is it's disembodying and we're removed from the person and it makes us, you know, more callous or, or things like that. And I, I'm sort of wondering within that, within the, the sort of environment or, or, or ecology of the digital world, how, like, what do you think of that critique? What, what, what's your sort of sense of it? I think there's a really important distinction to make there in terms of the critique, which is very popular. And I owe this distinction to a scholar in Malta, Nadia Delicata, who's a a good friend, who we've had conversations about this before. And she made a distinction along the lines of, is it disembodied or disincarnate? Mm. And what is the difference between those two? And I think that's a really helpful thing to think about because... I mean, it's never this communication is never disembodied. Like you and I are sitting here right now. We both are on chairs. We feel the chair on our bottom side. Like, you know, what I mean, it's still an embodied experience that we're talking mm-hmm. as mediated through through the computer and the phone. So 
this is still incarnate, this is still embodied. What it can become disincarnate is if we forget about that aspect of relationship mm. and that encounter with the other person that is shown supreme in the incarnation of, you know, word, word becoming flesh and the intimate invitation that is between God and humankind, right? So if we have a communication experience that is not broaching that relational aspect in some way or cognizant of the person behind the screen or honoring that, I think that's problematic, you mm -hmm. know? But, you know, just to be in front of a computer or talk through uh, a screen, it doesn't have to be disembodied or disincarnate, but it could be depending on, our, on how we approach it. And I think yeah. that's really a, a spiritual discipline for us to foster um, who are people of faith is to be intentional about even going back to issues like dignity of the person and recognizing that. And that's a reminder we have to make. We see things go awry when this doesn't happen, such as the viciousness on common boards and things like that, or bullying or objectifying people for amusement, entertainment, or other worse uses. I think that is a valid critique, and that's gone to its extreme, you know, if we don't recognize the person yeah. behind the screen. Yeah, I mean, and, and it ties into, you know, that sense of communication as, as the the giving the self in love. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if that's absent, then it's not, it's at least not authentic or genuine communication in the sense in which the church has meant it for the last 40, at least the last 40 some years. Uh, since Yes, I think that's a really good reminder and that, that beautiful classic definition of gift of self and love offered as what communication should be. I always go back to that. And I'm really glad you reminded us of that. And I think as I, I, you know, I just listed some, you know, terrible things such as bullying and using other people and even worse, but I think it doesn't really start there. What it starts with is just narcissism and navel gazing and like <laughs> posting things, right? But we all have that human tendency of like, how am I coming across? Am I getting enough likes and shares? And is this, um, is this something well received enough by clicks? You know, that sense of like how me, me, me in the interaction. There's enough of that me, me, me. We, get, we gradually forget about the other person altogether and then objectify them and then treat them poorly, right? So there's a trajectory there that I think, I mean, we're all kind of, let's be honest, we're all on that. Like neurologically, as you know, because I'm sure you've looked into this, mm -hmm. Facebook and other platforms are engineers to give us that mental buzz when we see that little red thumb, yep. that little red notification. So like we're chasing that. Our brain's like, let's get more of that. We're chasing that little dopamine kick from those little signals that give us a sense of importance, give us a sense of, oh, someone noticed me. So I think that that's problematic, but we are not sort of bound to that. We have agency, we have freedom, we have spirituality to have that be a balanced experience. Um, but it's not easy if we're not intentional about it, I think. I don't know. Yeah. To, to follow up on that, in your, in your own life, like, have you found a balance with engaging in, in digital media for yourself? Do you feel, are, are, like, are you prey to the temptation to get the retweets? Like, are you, have you found ways to form good habits around it? I ask because I am deeply still working on this for myself uh, oh, in addition yeah. to doing it as an academic exercise. I think that most of us who are at least aware and have that, that self-awareness about it probably are struggling with it. You know, I think people who just, you know, indulge and have fun with it. Uh, that's one level. But I think if you're thinking about this on any sort of adult level, whether professionally, like our, our mutual research, or even just as a person of faith reflecting on this, then there, there are some moments to pause there. So I think 
most people do think about this. Am I doing this too much? Is it actually addictive? Should I be sitting face to face with my spouse, with my child instead or whatever? So it's definitely a struggle. I, I, I definitely struggle with it myself in terms of either tr- spending too much ch- time or like using it as a mental break. Mm-hmm. I'll confess and I'll add this too as a personal aspect. So I'm a, I, I have a one-year-old son right now. And for those of you who are parents who are listening, as you know, when you have little ones, it's an all it's an all-consuming experience. And you give, <laughs> give, give, you know, talk about gift of self and love. And sometimes you just need a, me- a mental break. So I will like plop down and he's sleeping or whatever, and I'll just like scroll and look at what's going on. And I don't know if that's healthy for me, because after a while, like 10 minutes have gone by, 15 minutes. And I don't feel particularly edified or uplifted, maybe just more annoyed seeing some some silly stuff online or political stuff. So I don't know if that's helpful. And these are little patterns we fall into, you know. I also don't know about the content itself sometime. And this is just a personal worry, you know, in light of just having mentioned Pope Francis' recent message with fake news. I do seriously for playing with truth and falsehood. Like mm-hmm. And I'm not calling any political conviction out because I think it's across the board. And I think there's just a lot of play with truth. And I think that's concerning to me. And, you know, observing people in my social circles fall one way or the other and just waves of emotions moving through social media and big hypes. I'm not sure about a lot of that. I'm Mm -hmm. just not sure. And I think we should discern the spirit of that. I think we should not be so quick to jump, but rather to think and pray about truth and and mercy and love and, and the, you know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit in, in the midst of all of this stuff. And I just think sometimes social media moves so fast that it doesn't give us a breath to take a step back and really discern and be prayerful about it. Sometimes it does. Sometimes those are, there are those occasions that are graceful and grace-filled, but I don't know. I guess I'm not giving you a real concrete answer, but no, I guess I'm just okay. sharing also some things that challenge my experience with social media, social communication. And I, I think I, I kind of am jealous of and applaud people who take a pause I think you have also for a while. <laughs> and I think that's awesome. You know, um, lots of people do it for Lent, I've noticed, to give up Facebook for Lent and things like that. And I'm kind of jealous of that. But I also will admit on the other side of this that, you know, my, for personally for me this past year, my son came. And there's nothing like finding community online about things that one is going through mm-hmm. that are life-changing or challenging. You know, I think we both... A year ago or so, worked on a book by Deanna Thompson in that online, in that online a forum we had with her with Deanna and mm-hmm. her experience with cancer. Well, childbirth is is not comparable to that, you know, in terms of difficulty, but it is a transformation, and having a little one in life is a transformation. So it was a gift, you know, at two in the morning or whenever when I sat down to see like other moms' messages on a <laughs> random blog. So there are those upsides, too, where you can connect if you find meaningful ways to do so. I think we're all just going through the, the growing pains of this, honestly. I don't yeah. know. What do you think? I, I mean, I, I struggle with it a lot. I, I was really taken a few years ago now, but my, my wife started referring to mobile phones as adult pacifiers. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I like and I, I've been and I, I think I was very struck by that when th- in thinking about my own sort of engagement with technology, because a lot of the times that, that is what it is, is, you know, uh, it's just, it's not so much keeping me from crying, but keeping me from being bored. And then I've, I've also been struck more recently as I see like friends with very young children and it's now it's also like the child's pacifier. And I mm-hmm. like, and I, 
I've, I've been very grateful that I was born when I was because I, I, I mean, I wasn't fully formed before cell phones, but I was, I mean, I was, you know, I was in college when, when it started being a thing that people actually had. And I, I do sometimes clutch my pearls and, and worry about, you know, the young generation and everything else. But so I, I don't always know what to do with that. And I think about like, I, I do, I do have this desire to connect more meaningfully or more effectively online and have good conversations. And I've been able to have kind of people that I otherwise couldn't have because of it. But I also like, I I've, I've tried to figure out, I don't know, I guess like rules or guidelines for myself, you know, to sort of prevent myself from doing stupid things. Because if I, if I say something dumb to a, a friend of mine when we're at the bar, it's one thing and you know, it's, it's quickly and easily dealt with and it's fairly private and all of that. And I say something stupid online and it's, it, it has the same like disposable level of effort as something in person, but it has this this eternal digital afterlife. Um, oh yeah, and I and so I and it, I mean I sh- ideally I wouldn't say the dumb thing in either context, but so I don't know. I struggle with that. I've been trying to do things like I know on Twitter, and I'm I'm much more active on Twitter than I am on Facebook. Like there's the, there's the, there's the dunking culture where, you know, you try to embarrass someone or make someone look stupid for something they said. And, and I like, as someone who studies theology, I do often read things that I think are stupid online. And I, I sort of, it's not, it's not like a firm 24 hour rule, but it's like, you know, don't, (laughs) don't dunk on someone right away. Like sit with it for a while. Think about it. Like, is this worth (laughs) saying? Like, Will this will this provide light instead of just heat? You know, like, and I. Oh, well, that's know. cool. I don't. Have I like a... that. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just, no, sorry to cut you off. I, I'm just affirming what you're saying, and I think I resonate with it so much. I think again, all of us are going through these moving, these growing pains, especially if we're thinking about all of this intentionally. Like this is to me, this seems healthy, and I think that aspect of waiting and pausing and discerning again. If we go back to the theology of what communication is about, it's something that's given breath by the spirit, right? Mm-hmm. The word is is given breath by the spirit. So this should be a, a deeply spirit-filled activity, yeah. communication. It should be animated by the spirit. So if it's animated by the spirit, I think we need to discern and look for the fruits of the spirit and the gifts of the spirit, like in these endeavors. And if it's so quick, we can't, right? So something like giving yourself a breather to think and how is this life giving edifying, etc., it's just a healthy measure for any adult, but especially for a person of faith. And I also think that's where we can find opportunities for evangelization. Now, I think that parishes and ministries were quick to make the connection that this is an evangelizing platform. Mm-hmm. I need to be honest to evangelize, but like to what that actually means is a lot more complicated and an interesting question than, you know, just posting a holy card or something like, which could be meaningful for some, but like evangelization could go a lot deeper and so in what ways can we provide a presence that is a different, has a kind of different flavor to it than, you know, most of social media that goes back and forth with, you know, hurling insults and stuff. Can we still be present, but just like Christians elsewhere in the world, intrigue people enough to be like, hey, this is, they're doing this differently. I wonder about that. And, you know, attract people in a sense from our presence there. I also think as to follow up on a comment you made, you know, you're in theology. I myself also am a professor of theology. 
So we have a public voice to a certain extent to represent mm -hmm. not just the tradition, but also our institutions, right? So to have responsibility for what it means to have a public voice today is very important and could be tricky. Yeah. As you say, people lose their jobs over this or worse. They get harassed. They get, you know, hazed in lots of different ways just from doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing, which we all do the wrong thing and say the wrong thing sometimes. That, that's being human. But if it's for a person who's in a public role, it could be especially detrimental. I am in seminary formation. So I work at Notre Dame Seminary and I work with both late students and seminarians. And one of my goals there in my professional life right now is to teach and form people. How do you have that public voice, that mm -hmm. professional ministerial leadership voice in an age of digital communications? And it's a hard balance. I think most people, especially younger people who are coming in, can figure out how to you know, manage the platform and navigate it. That's not the problem. It's how do you have... How do you have that public voice? And for the priest, that means a particular thing. For the lay person, lay ecclesial minister or whatnot, lay graduate student, that means another thing. But either way, I think we have to be discerning about that aspect of it too. I'm representing something bigger than myself. Yeah, I, I teach a lot. Of, I, a lot of the courses I teach are for men who are becoming permanent deacons in the Catholic Church. And I've been impressed over, I mean, I've been doing that for five years now. And I've been impressed by how consistently the cohorts I get are deeply aware of like the coming public role that they're going to exercise. And, you know, a, I mean, a, a lot of them, you know, they want to serve. They're not, they're not really academically minded. That's not, you know, a real interest of theirs, but they, they want to be prepared for how to, well, one, how to be authentic at church teaching, obviously, but also like how to, how to mediate that in a sort of pastorally effective way and they're also very acutely aware of the the variety of landmines that they could be walking into. Mm -hmm. And so I've been very impressed by that. Do you ever, in, in terms of, you know, developing and having a public voice and, and even just sort of in the, with regard to the extensive, you know, world of information that is now, you know, constantly being churned, do you ever feel tempted to withdraw like I, I do, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do, but say more, finish your question. <laughs> I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot in, in terms of, so, I mean, some of it in terms of, you know, the, the U.S. political context and the, the sort of the, the constant churn of news and much of it disheartening at best. And I, I often feel like I, <laughs> I just don't want to read the news. I don't want, like, I don't want to like be online at all. I don't want to exercise a public voice at all. And then I, and, but then I also feel like that I feel like, and I, I use the word temptation genuinely because I, I don't think that that's necessarily a good impulse. And it's one that, I mean, it, it's, I'm privileged that I potentially have the option of making that choice, but so I don't know. I like I when I, I was off Facebook for a couple months during Lent, but it actually wasn't even because of Lent, um, which was kind of a strange thing for me. But some of that was that desire to sort of like get out of Dodge in a way, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there is wisdom in seeing if a, a context is toxic and, you know, getting one's bearings mm -hmm. once in a while. You know, I, so I don't I don't think that's a bad thing. I also this is a I mean, this is such a, an important topic for me withdrawing. What does that mean? For a while, I was really fascinated with Rod Dreher's Benedict Option, mm -hmm. which I, you might have heard of. And because my, myself being a Benedictine oblate, mm -hmm. okay, um, I've been an oblate for a while, an oblate of St. Joseph's Abbey, Abbey here in Covington, Louisiana. 
And so it's a beautiful spiritual tradition. It's very meaningful to me. And Rod Dreyer's book, The Benedict Option, came out talking about that spirituality, but in a way that didn't quite resonate personally with my understanding of the Christian's role in the world, especially the lay Christian's role in the world and the apostolate. Uh, the laity and evangelization. He has a very different take on that. And the critique for him that he's, he's tried to rebut is that he doesn't suggest actual withdrawal, but I think in some ways he still does. So this is the debate, you know, and people have different opinions on it. But, you know, sometimes when things are overwhelming, there is a temptation to just, you know, forget the rest of the world, which is probably going to hell in a handbasket, right? And I'm just gonna like <laughs> attach myself in like a little commune next to the monastery and you know have doomsday prepping going on i'm just kidding about all this yeah, yeah. but like it's a caricature of all like i'm just going to attach myself to the nearest monastery become an anchorite with my family or anchoress with my family and then like that will be fine i don't think that's what we're called <laughs> as, yeah. as, as, first of all as baptized christians right like baptism calls us to go and tell to go and, and make disciples to go and share and in what ways to, to do that i think we can have the freedom deciding on what our charisms are, recognizing what those are, to think about ways that we can do that the best. So I think there's there's decisions there. But I think it, it is healthy sometimes to say, is this life-giving for me or is this detrimental to me? And like to take a step back and withdraw once in a while, just from a particular context, I think that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But not to all at the same time lay down the entire responsibility. Yeah. I mean, for someone who's like genuinely addicted, because there's such a thing as internet addiction as, you know, for someone who's genuinely addicted, maybe it's not the best thing to feel the pressure of having to then go on Facebook to be a good Christian, right? <laughs> right? Like, though, I mean, there are some real circumstances there that would not be healthy for them. That's not your um, missionary and, field, yeah. Right, that's not the field. And think, you know, where else God might be calling you? What are your charisms? So I think it's important for us to think about all that. But it is overwhelming. And I, I just, I, I alluded to this earlier. I do wonder how much of it, is set up in a way to generate, you know, shock and awe from us. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about the history of media itself, which I'm not a big expert in, but I know a little of, it is, you know, going back to the penny newspapers of the 18, 1800s, where the, 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 um, the, the objective was to sell, to, mm -hmm. to shock people with stories that are interesting, so they sell. And some of it's still inherited in the media today. It is a business in a lot of ways. So when we go online and see stories that kind of make our blood boil, I think that, I mean, they're put there on a purpose that we keep looking and, and we keep debating and, and fighting about it. I, that's a concern for me. And like to be cognizant of that is one thing, but to like, how do you live in the atmosphere of that for a long time? I don't know. And I think that's what tempts me to withdraw when I can't really trust news from either side anymore because I think it's being manipulated to get a reaction out of me and band me together with people who the algorithm thinks I'm like-minded with. These are, again, I'm caricaturizing some things, but these are concerns for me that like would tempt me to withdraw. Like, how do you fight against that with your authentic gift of self? Like, how do you do that? I don't know. Well, and, and it's interesting the way you phrase it because like the, what you're identifying is even prior to the actual content of what you might read, it's, it's the sense that the, the ecology around the technology has become so manipulative in way i mean not that it was never it wasn't manipulative before but it's it's much more structured that way and we're much more aware of it that even entering into it becomes unattractive or problematic 
prior to whatever it actually might, what the content might actually be, whatever the story might actually say. So It's true. And so then how does the Christian respond? And is it valid then to withdraw, just not go into it in the first place? Or do we go in and fight? I don't know, you know? Or maybe not even just fight, but be like a pacifying presence. I don't know. These are valid questions I sit with, and maybe other people are too who are listening to this. Yeah. But I think it's just something that is part of, maybe the part of the cross of our time, you know? that's a difficulty that's something to bear i don't know i don't know i would love to hear more on this from other people yeah yeah me too i had two other maybe more serious questions i want to ask you and then do a little quick closing one is part of your i mean in a sense part of your public voice and your work is uh, you've consulted for the usccb committee on communications and i was curious how that came about for you and what what that has been like or what you do in that capacity Okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. And I think it's been a great blessing to be part of that. I, I got to do that for two cycles now. So they always rotate the responsibility of who heads each committee and they always gather their own consultants. So I've done that twice. And I really feel like I fell into it by grace. I through an academic conference called Theocom, which I've been involved with for about seven years. And I, you're about to go to it. Yeah, my first time. Um, very excited. Yeah. So I, I got involved with that. I think sort of when it started up and it had some great people involved who had been uh, longtime professionals or scholars in the field. And I just got to know that, got to know them through there. And one of them was Helen Osman, who at the time was this chief communications officer for the USCCB. So I don't know if she suggested my name or I don't know how that works, you know, behind the scenes, but I got to know her who was in that role and then was invited to be a consultant shortly thereafter. And I think part of the appeal was they were looking for people in theology who are of our generation, so as to be able to speak about digital culture from a more experiential perspective. And so it's been a great service. It's very, it's very neat to learn about the church and how she works in that mm -hmm. capacity and the bishops. And as I've been part of this, this, this sort of thing for my professional life, it's always very interesting to see like, that the bishops and their staff, they're very much real people who are working in offices. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of delightful to get to know that and see that. I know I think as, as the laity, we sometimes have like a little bit of fear and trembling with the like, oh, that's the bishop. Mm -hmm. And we should have respect for them, obviously. But also, they are delightful real people if you get the chance to get to know them. So that's been neat to have a kind of a, if you will, uh, to say the common way, a backstage view of how to, it's a very instructive, you know, especially since I work in a seminary to understand the world that some of the young men who I work with will, might be going into. That's been really instructive and neat. A lot of it's very, very practical, the consulting work, really practical, you know, mm -hmm. talking about Catholic news service and or the uh, uh, publishing house of the USCCB and what kind of decisions I need to make moving forward you know, being privy to offer opinion on certain draft documents that are coming out or just kind of those kinds of things. Uh, they have you know, annual meetings and congresses that they plan and what might be a good communication plan to set that up. So those kinds of things. I'm a theological voice on there. There's lots of people who are consultants who are media professionals themselves mm -hmm. or communication officers for dioceses. So again, it's a real good learning experience for me from their true professionals in the field. What are the questions that they think about and how can they help the bishops with that? Otherwise, you know, you and I know we can have the danger of being stuck in our ivory towers. Yep. <laughs> and it's so it's good to be grounded in like, this is what communication needs to actually happen. And these are the people that do it. And here's what 
here's, here's the questions that matter. Like, for example, I was just thinking about this. To put on something like a conference or a council, you have to have so many media so many people in the media credentialed and like mm -hmm. proper technology set up and such and such. You know, these decisions. Like I never think about that. But to learn <laughs> about these things, you know, for the church and what she needs to think about as these things unfold, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been that's been the gist of it. It's a very good learning experience for me. I'm grateful to have been a part of it. That's awesome. My other question is, I want to ask, do you actively bring digital media into your teaching? I do. I do. And um, at the seminary, it can be tricky because uh, sometimes it's viewed as a distraction or even even worse. You know, now that we have Apple Watches, it's been a concern. Maybe for in your classrooms, too, like are people looking things up on there for a quiz. And of course, as you know, the theology students and seminarians would never. Uh, <laughs> but I tried to show... I, I try to show digital media used in a positive capacity mm -hmm. in the educational context. So, you know, obviously things like, you know, showing video clips and things like that from YouTube or showing good resources is one thing. But for assessment purposes, for one of my classes, we have a blog. We have a blogging okay. assignment. And I really enjoy that because it gives the students a, a chance to talk with each other and try out their public voice in sort of a safe space. Mm -hmm. That's our blog. I know that's not, not the most novel form of digital technology blogging, but I think it's really good for that purpose, setting up an environment that's just theirs that I kind of facilitate and to get, yeah, give them a chance. It's been, actually, it's been community building for them that I've gotten really good feedback for it. So that's been positive. But, uh, you know, I'd love to ask you the question back in turn, since we're talking about this, if there's anything you'd recommend from your teaching that you've found helpful. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really figured out how to crack it with undergraduates. And so I... I still sort of, I sort of every semester defer like how to integrate it into those courses. The one thing I have done for the the diaconate courses that I do, and I, I like, I'm very happy with where I'm at on this assignment. I've always had them do homilies as one of their assignments in the semester. And they have to, you know, they have to pick a reading or a set of readings. They have to have a, a topic that connects to the semester. And what I've been having them do the last couple of years is they, they record themselves giving the homily and put it on YouTube. And it's, it's unlisted, so it's not going to be found, but it allows them to go back and watch it. It allows me to watch it outside of class and allows their other people in the cohort to watch it. And a lot of the students I've had have said it's been one of the best assignments they've had in the entire program mm. because it's something very practical that they will be doing in terms of preaching, but it, it enables them to sort of have a record and get feedback and everything else. And so I've been very, very happy with that assignment. So. so to piggyback on um, the example you just gave about the homily, one of the assignments I do, and especially with my lay students, is to have them record uh, and narrate a Prezi mm -hmm. or a digital presentation that's akin to a PowerPoint as the course assignment instead of a paper so as to teach them the skill of communicating publicly the theology, the good news, the catechesis they learn at seminary. And that's been a learning curve for some in terms of using the technology, but I get the same feedback at the end of, wow, this has been really great. Because again, like you said, it's giving a person a safe space to practice a skill that would be, you know, kind of overwhelming otherwise, but that'll that they will have to do nonetheless in ministry leadership roles. So I would also encourage anyone who's listening to try out that sort of assessment. Because the technology is there, and it's actually quite easy to master mm -hmm. once you get you try it a couple of times, and it gives students a, a, a could be a transformative experience. So I would echo that example, definitely. Great. So I'd like to wrap up with some less serious questions. 
So I, I, I have five of these. Number one, of whom or what would you be the patron saint? Oh my god! <laughs> oh, this is, you have to have. I'm an introvert, so these are gonna be hard for me because I want to retreat <laughs> right now and think back. Maybe the the patron saint of that particular disposition where you are kind of a serious person and don't really know how to take a joke, but want to be a joking person at your heart at the same time. <laughs> you know that disposition when you're like, people don't really know how to approach you because you're not that joking, but you really are a warm person. <laughs> so that disposition needs a patron saint, and that would be me. That's fantastic. The internet already has a patron saint and media and all this stuff. <laughs> that is so specific. <laughs> yeah. So, see, that speaks also to the, the patronage of that person because it's also part of my personality. <laughs> Number two, what is your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? Song? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I will say this with love. My church sings, once in a while, sings anthem. We are called, we are chosen, mm-hmm. which goes back to college days. And that was like the big dorm liturgy song. So I'm a little bit, that little bit, that, that's worn, it's, it's, uh, that's worn its appeal a little bit for me. I will that's also fair. add to that. Uh, let us build a city of God, mm-hmm. which I think might be semi-Pelagian if you really think about it. <laughs> like, are we really building? <laughs> so I always chuckle at that. That that's a good reason. Yeah. But you know, I don't I don't mind. Yes, I don't mind that genre of liturgical music. By the way, I I listen to everything, but yeah, that's not my favorite. My favorite hymn. I'll be more serious for that one, and it's actually the Pangilingua on Holy Thursday specifically when we have the procession and I think it's so beautiful and it's such a beautiful contrast sometimes, you know, to our semi cushy, comfortable, sometimes suburban parishes <laughs> when like that rings out and we sing it. I just, it, it, that's such history there and that's such depth and people pull out that sense of tradition from wherever they are on the spectrum. So that really moves my heart and I always have a sense of something greater. So that's my favorite. That's a beautiful one for me. That's great. So number three, you are from Hungary. When I someday go to visit Hungary, what is a dish or a meal that I should try? Oh, Steve, well, you could just come to my house here in New Orleans. And I'll make you something. <laughs> but if you go to Hungary, you cannot miss, first of all, a, the coffee shops with the pastries because we have a great tradition of that, just like the Viennese and the French. So treat yourself to a pastry at a coffee shop. Also, of course, wine and vineyards and and visiting just the whole uh, the whole culture of winemaking that's awesome there lots of meat and potatoes type of dishes lots of hearty stuff goulash paprikash all these things you might have heard already so just good things good things there people should go to eastern europe more often and visit we have good things there all right i i will now i this fourth question i know you have a young child so i don't know if you'll have a good answer for this or not but do you have a favorite guilty pleasure TV show or movie? Oh, <laughs> I'm sure I do. Arrested Development, mm. for sure. And I think my husband and I have watched The Office on Netflix for maybe three full turns at this point. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and maybe are considering the fourth and watch the whole thing again, even though we now kind of quoted back and forth by heart. And like, once you've become a working professional person with a boss and colleagues, that sh- that show becomes gold. You know, it's just the dynamics <laughs> of working in real life. So we we like to watch that. Yeah, those are two fun ones. And last question, 
because you are an expert in digital media and also in the liturgy, I want you to weigh in. People like to post selfies of themselves with Ash on Ash Wednesday. What do you think the of that? The hashtag. The hashtag. What the do you think? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. I'm, I'm not. We've done it. But I think that's something to discern, like, you know, per the dictum of our earlier conversation, whether we want to evangelize with it or we're, we're trying to be showy with it, right? And so really that's your, what is your motivation? What is your disposition moving toward the act of showing yourself with a selfie uh, and an hashtag? Are you trying to show off something that really is something you shouldn't be showing off, like how, how great or holy you are? Or are you showing maybe to try and remind people that it's Ash Wednesday and they'll see it there. They'll, they'll put down that ham sandwich and go to church, right? <laughs> so I don't, I'll, I'll turn it back to the person and to... Um, for them in turn to turn it to prayer and say, what, what motivates me to do this? You know, cause it actually could be a good reminder for somebody. Um, yeah, I forgot it was Ash Wednesday. Look, my friends got ash on their head, but if you're trying to get likes <laughs> and likes and retweets for it, I don't know if that's the, you know what I mean? I'm yeah. not sure if that's the best motivation. No, that's a great answer. That's a fantastic answer. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Okay. I really appreciate having been part of it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And, um, blessings on this ministry y'all are doing with Daily Theology. The Daily Theology Podcast was produced this week by me, Stephen Oki. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. If you haven't checked them out on Spotify yet, come on, man. Special thanks this week to Liturgical Press, who are enabling our giveaway of Dr. Jupin Jerome's book, Connected Towards Communion. If you would like to enter for a chance to win the book, you can either retweet or share the announcement on the Daily Theology Twitter feed, which is at Daily Theo, or you can leave a review of the podcast on iTunes and email a screenshot of your review. Additionally, all of our Patreon supporters are automatically entered in any of our book giveaways. If you like the podcast so much you would like to support us with a few dollars, go over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast. These pledges help us to cover the cost of hosting the podcast, and hopefully in the future, will enable us to get some better recording equipment so we can do live podcast events. Of course, if you want to know more about faith-seeking understanding in everyday life, head on over to our website, dailytheology.org, our Facebook page, Daily Theology, or our Twitter feed, at Daily Theo. 